sorry. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Lord God, this world is filled with evil. Evil is done to us, evil is done by us. And in your word, the Apostle Paul instructs us how to live in light of that. But it will take the transforming of our minds, it will take the truth that you have in your spirit to allow us to live this out. These things do not come naturally to us. They do not, they do not happen easily. So Lord, now help us to listen intently and to be doers. Give us the grace to, to live out this type of love. In Jesus' name, amen. The theme of this passage is, is one of retaliation, vengeance, repaying evil for evil. It starts it and it ends it. And as we're studying through the book of Romans, we're in the section now where Paul is telling us how to live according to the gospel. In the first 11 chapters, he was giving truth. He was teaching us, instructing us. It was the indicatives, the, the statements, the facts of the gospel. And Starting in chapter 12, we now enter to the imperatives, the commands of the gospel. And so Paul tells us in chapter 12, verse 1, that we're only going to be able to do this by presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. And then in verse 2, by renewing our minds, being transformed. It's a supernatural work that is required for us to be able to live this out. And we anticipate, by the way Paul frames this in verse 1 and 2, that there's two worldviews, there's two ways of looking at things. There are two approaches to life and its problems. Last week we saw the head-on collision that Paul gave with his instruction and the wisdom of the world. And the same will happen again this week. Our culture doesn't know what to do with revenge. On the one hand, the world's wisdom loves touting forgiveness. If there's anything the teachings of our Lord that our culture applauds. It's turning the other cheek. It's forgiving your enemies. At least our culture likes that in theory. But in practice, I think it looks a little more differently. I mean, how many movies, the premise is a man wronged, taking matters into his own hands and settling the score. We like seeing that, don't we? It's what every Clint Eastwood movie that I've seen, that's basically the premise. Um, and Clint's going to get you, you know, or, or nowadays, you know, I'm sure there are modern examples. So as much as on the one hand we like to talk about forgiveness, in our hearts secretly we delight. We delight 
in vengeance. In, in a man who has the power to, to, to not be trampled on. I mean, don't tread on me is a, is a flag that I see flying periodically. So, so Paul's instruction here is conflicting with our culture. Doesn't know what to do with our issues of revenge. Every one of us feels that we're entitled to rights and privileges. And when people trample our rights, we get mad. And I'm not going to let you do this. You, you can't do that to me. It just wells up within us naturally. Frederick Nietzsche, of all people, said that revenge is the greatest instinct in the human race. In this section, Paul's dealing not with the church and our, and our interaction there, but with the world, the evil that we'll face and how we will deal with that evil, how we will face that evil. And ultimately, he wants us to overcome the evil, not to be overcome by it. And so we'll see that in four points. First, we've got to live at peace in the world. Living at peace in the world. And right next to your notes on this point, you can just write down, surrender your rights. Surrender your rights. That's the theme of this first point. The way that we're going to live at peace is if we surrender our rights. First off, Paul says, never repay evil for evil. And yet, how often do we do that? Just think about this. At workplace, friends, somebody snubs you, somebody does something you don't like, and what's the natural thing? Well, I'll just do it back to him. We're not even talking about revenge here. We're just talking about if someone's mean to me, well, you know, maybe I won't be so kind to them. If somebody's impatient with me, I'm probably not going to extend grace to them. If somebody is gruff with me, well, I'll just, you know, do the same thing back to them. And it's hard enough for us in our circumstances to try to live this out, but in Paul's day, writing in the first century, the evils that he has in mind were probably far, far more severe. Evils like the stoning of Stephen. Evils like Christians being beaten and thrown into jail. Evils like the seizure of property mentioned in Hebrews 10. Paul has something far greater in mind, far more difficult in mind that we would do well to wrap our heads around. I went online to the website um, Voice of the Martyrs. I recommend checking it out periodically just to see what's going on, what type of evil is going on in the world around us right now. And Christian brothers in India, this, this happened on January 9th. Hindu radicals invaded the pastor's home on January 9th severely beating several of the 20 believers who had gathered at the home near Bangalore for a prayer service at about 10.30 p.m. A group of Hindu nationalists rushed in with clubs and iron rods and began to beat the Christians. The attackers, who accused the Christians of forcibly converting Hindus to Christianity, disappeared after the attack. Pastor Shan Thankumar, 39, lost a finger on his left hand during the attack and a young man received a serious injury to his leg. And a woman received head injuries and suffered severe nerve damage in her right hand. Please pray for the faith of these believers that it will remain strong and that they will be obedient to God. Please pray also for the pastor who oversees two other churches that he has founded in the area. This, is, this isn't some heroic thing of yours. This, this is going on right now. Evil is being done. And so the evil that happens to us, which to us is big, is, is dwarfed by the things that are going on. 
And that's the type of thing that was taking place in Paul's day. So, so how are we going to deal with this? I mean, how would you feel if in our gathering right now, it's more than 20 people, you know, a, a, a mob burst in and, and started beating people? How would you feel towards them if you were to run into them later on in the week? This, this, is, this is hard stuff. Do not be, don't think this is just about people who rub you the wrong way and small offenses. It's about that, but it's about a worldview and it's about an attitude towards revenge that we've got to get to the heart at. Secondly, we are to give thought to what is good. Literally, to be thinking beforehand about what is good, what is beautiful in the sight of all men. So you've got to surrender your rights to retaliate. You've got to surrender your rights and your liberty. Here, Paul has more in mind the notion of those things in the culture that the culture views as valuable, and biblically there's nothing wrong with that. And Paul's saying, look, in your actions in the world, give thought beforehand for the things that the culture finds valuable. I'll give you an example. If you were to go live in a Muslim country, um, you're perfectly free um, to have your wife not wear a veil. Biblically, there's no mandate, but you would likely offend people in that culture. The culture views that as a value, and so for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of living at peace with men, I would advise you to consider you know, changing your attire. See, there's, there's two mentalities here. One is asserting my rights. I'm free. I can do what I please. And there's a servant heart that lays down our rights. In our culture, maybe some examples might be um, language. I mean, I, I know it's hard to keep up with the politically correct titles and what you're supposed to call things, but it's a simple thing where we can give offense or we can play along and be at peace. And so I'd encourage you to, if you remember it, to, uh, to call firemen fighter, firefighters. Um, and I think everyone's an actor. Don't, we don't have actresses anymore. I mean, we all, it's just everyone's an actor, right? Um, and it's a simple thing. We may think it's silly, but it's a simple way that we can be at peace. It's a simple way that we can adopt the values of our culture, values that don't conflict with the gospel, values that don't conflict with biblical truth, and say, look, you know, I'm perfectly free to call that person a fireman, but I'll, I'll be at peace. And it's a small thing. But these are the types of things, but it gets at the hard attitude. Is my hard attitude flexing my muscles, flexing my rights? You can't tell me what to do. Or is my heart attitude like the Lord Jesus, who though he had the rights and prerogatives of God, he didn't consider them something to be held on to, but made himself nothing, and became a servant, and humbled himself. And so Paul wants us to give thought beforehand, to be thoughtful about the things we're doing, the way we live, that if possible, for the sake of being at peace with all men, to do what is right and honorable in the sight of men. It's, it's a different mindset. There's the rights privileges at his mindset and there's the servant mindset in 1 Peter 2.16 Peter writes live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover up for evil but living as slaves of God and all this is with, with a view to being at peace with all men if possible as much as it depends on you this echoes Jesus teaching of blessed are the peacemakers it's inevitable that there will be conflict with the world, but what Paul's saying is, let's not be the ones who start the fight. 
We should not be offending people with anything other than the gospel and holy lives and biblical truth. Um, it's one thing for people to be offended by the truth of God. It's another thing for people to be offended by Christians who are jerks and hypocrites and, and not living the way we should live. And Paul's saying, if, as much as you can, as much as I can, don't pick fights with the world. Live at peace. Now, he does notice when possible, which, which begs the question, well, when isn't it possible to live at peace with all men? I can think of at least three examples. Um, the first is for the sake of conscience. Uh, a few years ago, um, a student in our ministry created great conflict in their family when they were, for the sake of conscience, unable to attend a wedding of two men in the family. And after a lot of prayer and a lot of consideration, this student prayerfully informed their parents, I, I can't go. Um, I can't support this. And that created division and, and friction in the family. And this person was called judgmental and all sorts of names. Well, there's an example where I'd like to be at peace with all men. I'd like to not stir the pot. But for the sake of conscience, I, I, I can't do this. There are times when that will be the case. There are times when for the sake of truth, There'll be problems. The world wants us to agree. The world doesn't mind us believing what we believe as long as we can recognize the validity of everyone else's viewpoint. I was recently told that it wasn't the problem that I thought my view was right, but that, that I thought my view was better. To which I responded, isn't what's right better than what's wrong? And that's the type of stance that is likely going to offend our culture. And it, it's inescapable. It can't be helped. We can be loving about it, but it's, it's inescapable. And thirdly, there can just be conflict because we're Christians and the darkness hates the light. In John 15, 19, Jesus writes, or Paul, John, sorry, John writes, quoting Jesus, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You've got to understand that the freedoms and the liberties that we enjoy in our country is is the exception, it's not the norm. Church, church history is one of the more neglected disciplines, but a, just a cursory reading of church history will show you that it's not normal for Christians to be um, at peace in the world. What's normal are the types of things taking place in India. If you read your New Testament, if you read the book of Acts, this is much more normal than the lives we live. And praise God for the blessings we have, praise God for the freedoms we have. But it shouldn't surprise us that conflict will come. It is inevitable. Paul says in Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So we've got to give up our rights. We've got to give up our rights to retaliate. We've got to give up our rights to, to live how we please. And we've got to be peacemakers. And that's going to involve, again, surrendering our rights, picking and choosing our battles with wisdom. Secondly, We've got to trust in God's justice. Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What's interesting to note here is the Apostle Paul does not condemn the desire to see justice done. He does not say, do not avenge yourselves, never want that to happen. What he says is, don't you take it into your own hands, leave it to God. One of the commentators that I read said this, this text suggests 
that believers will not be able to conquer feelings of revenge unless we know that ultimately there is justice, that God will set all accounts right. We are not to take personal vengeance. That is forbidden. But yet it is not wrong for us to yearn for justice. When you hear about injustice, when you hear about cruelty, abuses of power, there is something righteous and godly to cry out for God to deal with it. You can't read through the Psalms very long before you see David crying out that God would deal with his enemies. But the common denominator in all this is, God, you deal with it. Glorified saints in heaven, in Revelation chapter 6, glorified saints, sinless Christians in heaven who've been martyred on the earth cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign God, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So there's something right about that. I mean, and this is the tension. It's not as simple. It is turn the other cheek, but it's not as simple as just turn the other cheek and somehow approve and be okay with, with abuse, be okay with cruelty, be okay with the horrors and evil in the world. While we're turning the other cheek, while we're praying for our enemies, we're also looking to God to deal with things. Never avenge ourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Literally make room or place for wrath. What, what, what Paul is saying is, my attempts at justice, my attempts at revenge, are actually going to get in the way of God's justice. Calvin, writing about this passage, said, at the same time, Paul intimates that they shall have God as their defender who patiently wait for his help, but that those who anticipate him, those who jump in first, leave no place for the help of God. Or another way to say it is, you can either fight for your rights or you can let God fight for you, but you can't have both. That, that's, that's something I'll often bring up in, in counseling, talking to people, is the temptation is, I want to fight for my rights. I don't want to turn the other cheek. I don't want to be walked all over. Okay, fine. But if you do that, not only will you be in sin, disobeying God, but God will cease to fight for you. And trust me, you want God fighting for you. You want God fighting your battles. You, you don't want to be doing it yourself. You can either fight for your rights or you can let God fight for you. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We see the same pattern um, from our Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, we read, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, Jesus, while turning the other cheek, Jesus, while suffering abuse, was looking to his father and his father's justice. Even while Jesus was being crucified, he was looking for justice to be done, except he was looking to his Father to do it. That's the posture that we're to take. We're to follow after our Lord who has left us a model, to walk in his footsteps. 
So the part of you that cries out against injustice, the part of you that when it's either done to you or it's probably harder when it's done to ones we love, family members, that, that cries out, this is not right, that's true. And the Bible deals with that, and the Bible would simply direct you to God, the Father, waiting on him, waiting on his timetable, waiting on his justice. You know, I'll, I'll never forget um, a lunch that I had when I was in seminary. I went over to the, the Salt's house with a professor, and we're having lunch, and the professor began a conversation with the wife, Robbie Salt, about the circumstances of her, um, the dissolution of her, her first marriage. When she became a believer, her husband hated the gospel, hated truth, and left her. But not before slandering her character, making her out to be some crazy cult member, and in the process, getting full custody of all of her children. And she didn't fight back. She did not slander him in return, didn't hire an attorney to try to throw mud at him, um, partly due to the lack of funds and partly due to just not wanting to make a circus of everything. And so this godly woman, after coming to Christ, is left by her husband and then has her children taken. And the, the seminary professor just asked her how, how she was able to patiently endure. Because the, the happy ending to this story is that in God's time, as each one of her three children reached 18, they all voluntarily left their father and moved in with her. So there's a happy ending to this story. But the professor, Professor Cragen, said, how, how did you do that? That must have been so difficult to have your children taken from you, to have your character smeared and attacked in the, in the community. And this is what she said. She said, the Lord Jesus every day, his character is smeared, his name is cursed, his will is thwarted, and yet he patiently awaits the day when God will set things right. He patiently awaits his own vindication. If Jesus can be so treated and patiently endure, how can I not? It's the type of thing you just get shivers when someone says it because it was just so powerful. How can I demand justice now when the risen Lord of glory patiently awaits the justice of God the Father? In fact, when you think about it, our attempts to repay wrath really are attempts to add to God's wrath. It must be that we don't really believe that God will judge sin because which one of us would want to really add to the wrath of God. I mean, imagine someone has offended you. We'll call him Bob. Bob has offended you. Now, you've got to understand that Bob's sin, God is keeping score. God is fully aware of that. He is judging justly, and that sin of Bob's will either be paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross or by Bob in hell. And to which one would you add your own wrath? I mean, it's, it's, it's unthinkable to see Jesus up on the cross, suffering, bearing the, the full weight of our sin, enduring the agony of the wrath of the Father, and to say, well, Jesus, if you want me to forgive Bob, you can take my wrath too and pick up a rock. And, I mean, it's unthinkable. But when we repay, when we strike out in vengeance, that's exactly what we are doing. We are saying, either Jesus' death is not enough to deal with this, or God's wrath in hell is not. As if we'd look over the edge of the precipice at this person who offended us in agony and say, you can, you can take my wrath too. And again, throw a rock down. 
If we really believed that God would judge the world, we'd be willing to be patient. We'd be willing to endure. We'd be willing to love our enemies. And our own attempts at wrath simply show our impatience or our unbelief that God really will settle the score. God really will make all things right. He really will settle accounts. He really will. And then Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32.35. Would you turn there for a minute? Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses. It's near the close of the book. And Moses writes a song recounting God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness and what the future will likely hold for Israel. But after warning Israel in the first 30 verses, he turns to the issue of God fighting for Israel, God avenging Israel. And that's where this quotation, vengeance is mine, I will repay, comes from. I just want you to read this, that the description of the wrath of God against Israel his enemies, and against those who would dare to attack his people. Verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and that there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods and the rock in which they took refuge who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand for I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. That's the heart of God towards those who would dare attack you. That's the heart of God towards those who would dare do evil to his children. God, God's fully aware of the wrongs being done to you. He is fully aware and passionately concerned about the evil being done in this world. And Paul says, just give God's justice time. Don't get in the way of God's wrath with your piddling, tiny, infantile wrath. If what you really want to see is justice done, the best thing you can do is get out of the way and let God work. He will repay. Accounts will be settled. And I want you to notice something in this in, in Deuteronomy 32, 35. Whose is vengeance? Who does the Lord say? To whom does it belong? Vengeance is mine. Do you realize that? That the right to all vengeance belongs only to God and to those whom he gives it? 
Next week, we'll see in Romans 13 that God has given the state the prerogative to execute vengeance in certain cases. But he has not given that to you or to me individually. So when we try to execute vengeance, when we try to avenge ourselves, when we strike back, in a sense, we're engaged in an act of theft. God says, vengeance is mine, and I say, and mine too. Don't, don't forget me. God will says he will repay, and we say, I will too. You know, tur- turning your Bibles to uh, 2 Samuel is a striking picture, that, an image of what's going on when we attempt to take matters into our own hands. David had a son named Absalom, if you remember, and Absalom mounted a coup, actually displaced David for a little while from the throne. David had to flee the city. Um, ultimately, David's kingdom was established. But in 2 Samuel 15, we read about how it is that Absalom, his son, began this coup. How it was that he started revolt. First six verses. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. So he's got an entourage. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did all to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment, and so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So what does Absalom do? He sets up his own mock court outside of David's castle or um, royal home. And there, he in his little mock court with his 50 men in his chariot and his little entourage holds court. And when people come to the king for judgment, he calls them over. And, and then he begins to indict his father's justice. Oh, that there was justice. Oh, that there was someone who would repay. And I'm up for the job. And what Absalom does there in starting revolt is exactly what you and I do every time we take matters into our own hands. If only there was a living God who was keeping track of everything and would settle the score, then I wouldn't have to yell at you. Right? That's what we're doing. We are setting up our own judgments. We are setting up our own little kingdom as little potentates, and we are pouring out our wrath. How dare you thwart my will? How dare you do that to me? This is what I do to my enemies. I'm going to get you back. Don't get mad. Get even. And the kingdom of Jeremy begins to advance against Jeremy's enemies. And all the while, I am guilty of cosmic rebellion because my own attempts at vengeance indict God's justice as insufficient. Every time you and I take matters into our own hands, we are stealing God's prerogative and inadvertently saying, God's justice isn't good enough or it comes too late. So I gotta step up and man up and take care of this myself 
You want to get a job done right? You got to do it yourself. That's what we're saying in our anger when we take matters into our own hands. And I'm belaboring the point because we won't see it this ugly when the wrong is done to us. We won't think of it this way. I know I shouldn't, but, and we need these truths, these graphic pictures to come into our minds of what's really going on when we are tempted at revenge. Because make no mistake, if we succumb to this, we are being overcome by evil. And the whole goal of this is to overcome evil with good. Your longing and your desire for justice to be done is good, it's right. Jesus has the same desire. Wait on God's timetable. Wait on God's timetable. Thirdly, learn to love and serve your enemies. Learn to love and serve your enemies. Here's sort of the put off, put on. Don't avenge yourselves. Trust in God's wrath. To the contrary, verse 20, Romans 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Rather than take revenge and get angry, it's not even enough for us to uh, just do nothing. Paul is calling on us to actively love. Actively get out there and, and start loving and serving our enemy. This sounds an awful lot like the teaching of our Lord in Matthew 5, 38 to 42, where he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Turn the other cheek. Don't resist an evil man. This is about personal vengeance. Next week, we will see that there absolutely is a place for the law and the authorities to restrain sin. This does not mean that if you see a crime taking place, you don't call the police. This doesn't mean if someone's threatening the life of your family, you don't resist them. This is talking about personal vengeance. Slap in the face is an insult. To be asked to carry something by a Roman soldier for a mile is, is demeaning. You might think that it's beneath you, and Jesus is saying, no, don't, don't resist that type of thing. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And, and again, this is hard enough when it's the people who bother us, but imagine again that you are in this prayer meeting in India, and one of the thugs who cut your pastor's finger off, who partially paralyzed an older woman's hand, you run into him in the market, or, or worse yet, you run into him needing help, he shows up at a clinic. Would you be able to love him? Would you be able to serve him? Would you be able to help revive him and give him strength with water and food. It's too hard to think about. And I can only pray that if we were in a situation like this, God's grace would be sufficient. But this is, if it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean anything in Paul's context. Remember, Paul, after all, was one who persecuted the church. Can you imagine the, the widows in the church whose husbands were put to death in part due to the work of Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, as he was called, before his conversion. Paul had been on both sides of this thing. And it was life or death issues. The evil being done to them was great evil. 
And he's telling them to love their enemies, to serve their enemies. And he says that in doing so, he will reap coals on their head. And a lot of people debate what's, what's being meant here. Is he talking about something bad or something good? Is he talking about the coals of a conscience that bothers you? Or is he talking about the wrath of God? And, and again, I found Calvin um, helpful in this. He says it's both. He says, I take a simpler view that your enemy's mind shall be turned to one side or the other, for doubtless our enemy shall either be softening by our kindness, or if he is so savage that nothing can tame him, he will yet be burnt and tormented by the testimony of his own conscience on finding himself overwhelmed with our kindness. Remember, David was chased about for years by, by King Saul. He'd done nothing wrong. He was a loyal supporter of the king, and because Saul was envious and jealous of him, Saul sought to kill him, put him to death. David lived in caves and just fled around. And twice, it was within David's power to put Saul to death. Twice, David was so close, he could actually cut a piece of Saul's garment off. And in in 1 Samuel 24, after David has let Saul live, he cries out to him when Saul gets a little further away and holds up the piece of the garment and, and lets Saul know, I'm not your enemy, Saul. I could have killed you, and I didn't. Then David cries out, let God judge between you and me. And listen to Saul's response. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Saul had hot coals stacked upon his head and his conscience beat him and he wept. He doesn't ultimately repent. He ultimately goes back to his insane plan to thwart God and dies a horrible death. But here, David's kindness, David's repaying good for evil brings him to tears as, as his conscience and, and God's Truth hammers at him. The contrast between what he's doing to David and what David's doing in return to him. It's a far more powerful weapon doing good in the face of evil than doing evil. It's a far more powerful weapon. And that brings us fourthly to the conclusion. This is sort of the summary statement. This is what all this is getting at. Remember, we're, we're not to return evil for evil. We're not to use our liberty, liberty for our own purposes, but to serve. We're, we're to live at peace with all men. We're not to take personal vengeance. We're to let God deal with that. Instead, we're to love our enemies, serve them, give them food, hopefully win them. Hopefully, in loving them, they will stop being our enemies. And so Paul summarizes, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Literally, the word is conquer, a Nike shoe, it's the Greek word Nike, victory, victor. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. We've just seen how to do that. Which means that what happens in our response, whether or not we choose to, to retaliate, or whether or not we choose to love and serve, is whether or not we've been conquered or we conquer. I don't care how powerful your revenge is. I don't care how effective your wrath is. If you strike back, even if you vanquish your enemies, you've been defeated. That's what Paul's saying here. We've been defeated the moment we begin to respond in kind. And rather, we are to defeat 
evil with good, by doing good. It's a counterintuitive strategy. This is why it takes the wisdom of God, the spirit of God, the truth of God, the transforming power of God for us to live this out. It does not come naturally. What Paul's saying is we must outlove, outserve, outsuffer, and outlast our enemies until either they cease to be our enemies but our friends or until God deals with them in his time. We're to overcome evil with good, not be overcome by evil. Listen to these words from John 16, verse 33. Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room just before he's about to be carried off and murdered. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So I want to leave you with this thought. How is it? that Jesus overcame the world? How is it that Jesus killed death? How is it that Jesus conquered his foes? Was it through asserting his rights? Was it through a show of force? Or was it by submitting to wrong treatment and loving his enemies? You know the answer. Yes, he's coming again, on a white horse to make war with the world and set things straight. But the model that we have to follow is the humble Lord. The model that we have to follow was the Lord who conquered all of his foes, conquered death in the process because he was willing to be mistreated, to look to God, and to love his enemies. We just gotta pray that God would give us the grace to do so as well. It will not be easy. It certainly will not be easy for the believers in India. I'd encourage you to pray for them, and you can read about this. This just happened last week um, in India. Pray for the brothers and sisters in the world, and pray that God would give us hearts that don't look to strike back, but to destroy the evil with good. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. It is hard, we admit, to love our enemies in this way. It is hard to let go of our rights. It is hard to accept mistreatment. So Lord, help us to really believe in your justice. Help us to really be aware that there's gonna come a day, Lord, where you will settle accounts and justice will be done and it will be seen to be done. That your heart is for us and that you are grieved as we are wronged and yet you would have us follow the example of our Lord to love our enemies to return an insult with kindness and blessing and to trust you. And Lord, we learn paradoxically that in so doing, we defeat evil itself. Help us to believe that, Lord. Help us to live that, to strive to do that. Help us to resist those desires that well up in us for revenge, for retaliation, and look to you to deliver us, to look to you to save us, to look to you, to fight for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.